tonight's talk will be somewhat unusual. It's a commentary on a famous, very old Tibetan Dharma teaching. It's called the 37 Practices of the Bodhisattvas. The approach and the language in these teachings are quite uncompromising. Really far from meditation for wellness and inner balance. And usually the commentaries are also delivered in this style. That's how we received the Dharma from our teachers, lamas in India. Here I'll try to make sense of it for our secular society, but if any one of us feels touched by it, all the better. I'd like to begin with a quote by the Dalai Lama to set the tone. We are visitors on this planet. We are here for 90 or 100 years at the most. During this time, we must try to do something good, something useful with our lives. Try to be at peace with yourself and help others share that peace. If you contribute to the happiness of others, you will find the true goal, the true meaning of life. Then I would like to situate this teaching here in its historic context just a little bit. The author of this 37 verses, Togme Sampo, was a Tibetan monk who lived in Sakya area from the late 13th century to about 1370. He was a highly qualified scholar who had studied countless teachings from all Tibetan traditions and he dedicated every second of his life to the Dharma, which he then spread through writing, through teaching and debate. At the age of 40, he moved to Ngulju Shotsong, where he spent 20 years in a cave in retreat, a little retreat. I think he, after that, by age 60, he probably had a lot to share. I mean, quite impressive, I find. The text begins with a tribute to the Bodhisattva Avalokiteshvara. There's up here. It's the great compassion of all Buddhas who, although he has recognized all phenomena as empty of self-existence, he works uninterruptedly for the welfare of living beings. Bodhisattvas are people or higher beings who dedicate their Dharma practice and their whole life or all their lives to the welfare of all living beings. So here's the first verse. It says, Now we have attained the great boat of human life which is hard to find. To listen to the Dharma day and night, to reflect on it 
and finally to meditate on it and implement it in order to free ourselves and others from the cycle of suffering is the practice of the daughters and sons of the Buddhas, the Bodhisattvas. Our situation as Dharma practitioners is quite extraordinary. It's the fact that we're human beings with all abilities and possibilities, consciousness, intelligence, sensitivity and a genuine interest in life and inner growth is no matter of course. We're not completely worn out by endless work or hard struggle for survival. A large part of humanity spends its time through struggling for survival and for many, actually millions, it's hopeless. While we have everything we need and we're relatively healthy or very healthy and in case of illness we can obtain medical help which again, not all human beings can. We live in a comparatively free society. We can do what interests us think, speak, read, write and print whatever we wish. Countless people in this world are imprisoned or even tortured because they take these freedoms or even just call for them. And above all, it's very rare and extremely valuable that the path to inner freedom is accessible and that dharma and meditation can be taught and practiced. Buddha called this the precious human situation. He illustrated its rarity and preciousness with an image. It's from the original text. <clears throat> I mean, it's not that's a quote. It's where it comes from. Imagine a golden ring swimming on the vast ocean. It's driven here and there by wind and waves. At the bottom of the ocean lives a blind turtle, which only rises to the surface once every hundred years. Whatever it goes to do there, I'm not sure. And then dives down again. As rare and unique as it is that the turtle appears with its head through this golden ring. As extraordinary and rare is the fact of our human existence with all those possibilities and qualities and abilities that we have, particularly access to dharma and interest in it. Most people would have access, have no interest. We all have this chance of a precious human life. Usually we take it for granted, isn't it? But it's really amazing. Shantideva wrote, In the boat of this human life, we can cross the floods of suffering. To sleep away this opportunity would be very foolish. Second verse. When attachment to our friends and loved ones floods us like a torrent, 
when hatred against unloved ones and opponents blazes like fire in us, when the darkness of delusion deceives us in regard to what to accept and what to give up, that is, what is wholesome and what is unwholesome, then leaving our homeland is the practice of the daughters and sons of the Buddhas, the Bodhisattvas. The attachment that arises particularly for people and things we love most, as well as the aversion and hatred for unloved or hostile people, they're said to be the strongest causes of inner suffering. Shantideva calls these unwholesome forces, these kleshas, the thieves waiting for an opportunity to steal our happiness. Finding true freedom from these thieves, such as desire and aversion and all the endless varieties of it, in these situations that it described here, that's extremely difficult. This is why it is suggested here to get out of such situations first, just to leave home. I think to us it sounds very radical. Perhaps, perhaps we hope that this advice is not really meant for us. In fact, it has been and still is an essential practice of monks, nuns, yogis and yoginis in most cultures of the world from time immemorial. But also some of the lay people who teach the Dharma in this center or elsewhere moved out as young people for many years to learn, practice and apply the Dharma, meditate, practice. India, Southeast Asia, many other places. When today in a widely read meditation magazine there's a quote from a world famous mindfulness researcher who says big quote the idea that meditation is accompanied by a withdrawal from the world is a very big misunderstanding then this is securely correct is surely correct if the desired goal is simply more mindfulness more care becoming somewhat wiser more sensitive in handling oneself, maybe people around us. But the author, Tokme Sangpo, writes here from the perspective of practitioners who have focused their attention on complete liberation, liberation from all deceptive and all tormenting states of heart and mind, and on the ability to support as many living beings as possible on this path. For this, Dharma practice must be the first priority of life, maybe even the only priority. And of course, this is not the call to leave one's family, partners and children if we have chosen to uh, this kind of lifestyle. But those who are relatively or completely free from such obligations could perhaps seriously consider whether a long time long time out for retreats and other forms of intensive practice would not be the best way to spend the next few years of one's life.
And I know there's always been people also in these retreats who do that. When we do it, we have the ability to see increasingly more clearly which actions of thinking, speaking, and acting are to be cultivated and actually cultivate them, and which ones are to be abandoned and actually abandon them. This is the practice of the bodhisattvas. You see what I mean by the different tone? Verse 4. We will be separated from our beloved partners, friends and acquaintances. We will have to give up our wealth and possessions acquired with so much effort. Our body, like a guest house, will eventually be abandoned by consciousness. To give up attachment to this life is the practice of the sons and daughters of the Buddhas, the Bodhisattvas. The fact that we'll sooner or later be separated from our partners and our friends is a very obvious fact, which we are usually reluctant to acknowledge. Yet, when separation occurs today, tomorrow, or in a few years, we're surprised, we're shocked, we're shaken, we're dejected. If our relationships are based on desire and attachment, we will suffer. And realizing this does not mean that we should not, you know, we should try not to love and care for these people anymore. But if our relationships are increasingly based on loving kindness and genuine compassion and appreciation rather than on desire and attachment, then they will lead to a sense of connectedness, of fulfillment, and at the same time, to more inner freedom. And the same applies to our possessions. It applies to our money, our clothes, our vehicles, our furniture, our appliances, gadgets of all kinds. All these things pass away, break, become obsolete or uninteresting, disappear, break down, lose their value or are used up sooner or later. But so often we are preoccupied with all of it and invest endless amounts of energy and time. If we cling to them, we will always be frustrated and suffer. The practice of the bodhisattvas is to give up attachment to people, to possessions and to the body, which is not very easy. The Dalai Lama was apparently once asked what surprised him the most in life. He said, um, humans, for they sacrifice their health to make money, then they sacrifice their money to regain their health, and then they are so afraid of the future that they do not appreciate the present. The result is that they do not live in the present. They live as if they would never die, and then they die and have never lived, really. 
That's interesting. <laughs> the uh, Thai master Achan Cha, Ursula spoke about last night, uh, said that he owned a beautiful cup made of fine porcelain. He explained to the monks that he saw the, the cup as if it were already broken. So he could really appreciate its beauty, but in the event of loss, he would not suffer for a moment because he did not feel the slightest attachment to it because he he knew, in a way, it was already broken and gone anyway. And the most obvious of all this is, of course, the problem of attachment to our body. The effort to, the effort it keeps takes to keep it healthy and alive is already enormous. Cooking, eating, moving it, cleaning and showering it, warming it up, cooling it down, emptying it, healing it when it's ill and so forth and so forth. In addition, we have to constantly beautify it, perfume it, make it up, anoint it, decorate it, shave it, peel it with the necessary time for searching, selecting and buying the appropriate products then the occupation with it increasingly fills our days. It also becomes more difficult to accept that our body that is we sometimes get sick, age, lose our good looks and ultimately get old frail and helpless provided we can can even make it that far. My sense is from my experience at least at 30 this still seems completely irrelevant to most people. At 50 the suspicion arises that it could be so. (laughs) Soon after I can tell you soon after the process becomes an obvious fact. <laughs> the Japanese poet Rokan wrote a haiku on the subject. He said, Month pass, months pass, days pile up, like one intoxicated dream, an old man sighs. Attachment to the body, to youthfulness, to beauty, to health, brings immeasurable suffering. And non-attachment does not mean indifference or irresponsibility or discarding or laissez-faire, but clarity in accordance with existence, with life as it is. The way of the Bodhisattvas is to give up the attachment to this life, the attachment to everything. Verse 6, and I'm not going to go through 37, just for you to (laughs) relax. Number 6 says, if we rely on worthy masters, and if our virtues grow like the waxing moon, then we should value them higher than our own bodies. This is the practice of the Buddha's daughters and sons, the bodhisattvas. 
I think this is why it is interesting and useful to contemplate the lives of the great masters, starting with the Buddha, maybe with women like Pachapati, to the great masters of our time, to Dingo Kensi Rinpoche, or the Dalai Lama, or Munenjuji, or Achan Sumedho, Achan Cha, or Master Sheng Yen. Maybe also people like Mahatma Gandhi and Mother Teresa and Martin Luther King and many others. The practice of the Bodhisattva is set to here is to take them as role models to contemplate and explore their teachings to get inspired and to practice them consistently and to apply them in our into our life. By the way, some more advertisement. This is really why I wrote this book with all the stories on the saints. Because I see that this is of no interest. You know, what we do here comes somewhere from Illinois or Massachusetts for 40 years ago. And I mean, this is so many human beings, so many men and women over two and a half thousand years have really put their lives completely into the practice in so many cultures and that's why this is still alive that's why it's still available and I think it's very important it's also I think why Ursula was uh, giving a sense of the whole tradition yesterday you know it's not just some guy in southern Sussex or Essex who sort of opened this monastery it's a whole whole practice lineage from way back to the Buddha and probably from before. So if we do this consistently, it says here, our mistakes will diminish and our wholesome qualities will grow like the waxing moon. Therefore, therefore the verse says, we should value the great masters higher than our own bodies. This is the practice of the bodhisattvas. Then verse 8 to 9. Unbearable suffering results from unwholesome actions. The joys of this world are like two drops on a blade of grass and fade quickly. To avoid the unwholesome, even if it would cost a life and to aspire to, for the highest in this indestructible liberation is the practice of the daughters and sons of the Buddhas, the Bodhisattvas. So these teachings and practices include avoiding and freeing ourselves from unwholesome actions. And of course, there are pleasant and beautiful things in this world. The Buddha spoke what is beautiful in this world remains so, but the wise no longer thirst for it. The problem is not the beauty. The problem is the clinging, the desire. But what is beautiful and pleasant also disappears again and again, like dew drops on a blade of grass. That is why it is so important that we do not 
achieve what is pleasant by means of unwholesome states of mind, such as greed or desire or attachment or avarice, and that we do not try to get rid of unpleasant things, such as difficult people or unwanted situations or painful experiences by means of unwholesome mental states, such as resentment, anger or hatred. The text states, to avoid the unwholesome, even if it would cost our lives, and to aspire for liberation, is the practice of the Bodhisattvas. Now we jump to verse 26. It refers to ethical conduct, which is the basis for any kind of effective Dharma practice, and is also the result of genuine spiritual practice of all kinds and of all traditions. Here's the verse. If without ethical conduct our own good cannot be achieved, the desire to achieve the well-being of others without ethics is ridiculous. That is why adhering to ethical behavior without worldly intentions is the practice of the daughters and sons of the Buddhas, the Bodhisattvas. Joseph Goldstein finds, if we practice without taking wholesome ethical conduct as a basis, it is comparable to a boat with which we want to set sail, but which has not been untied. Like I can row. Turn on the motor. It's not going anywhere. And in a letter to the mighty Mongolian Khan, the Tibetan master Jetsongkapa praises the value of ethical conduct as follows. Writing to the Khan, Your sublime figure is beautiful, not because of colored colorful robes, but because of being mindful of the welfare of others. Your sublime year, 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 is beautiful, not because of golden earrings, but because of listening to the good teaching. Your sublime arm is beautiful, not because of jingling bracelets, but because of engaging in giving alms. Ethical behavior is both the basis and the result of practice. Verse 10. If all living beings who have been like a mother to me in the countless lives have to suffer, what is my own happiness good for? Therefore, in order to free countless living beings the daughters and sons of the Buddhas cultivate bodhicitta. This is where the actual Mahayana aspect of these teachings and practices comes in. And with it, the actual bodhisattva teachings. And bodhicitta means aspiring for complete awakening in order to be 
of the greatest possible benefit to all living beings. So here a traditional Buddhist view is referred to, namely that we have been circling or stumbling from life to life to life since beginningless time. Therefore, it must be assumed that countless living beings have already been our mothers, isn't it? If we have been living on and on endlessly, they say, since beginningless time. At least once or maybe many times. And all of them have treated me, us, as mothers, as parents, nourished, protected, raised, educated, and instructed us in countless lives. The question that is asked here is, what good is my own happiness if countless living beings, all of whom have once been my mothers, are still suffering? Isn't it interesting, Mom? (laughs) Even when we do not believe in rebirth, we can develop kindness and compassion towards many people because we we, we, we were and we still are dependent on them in innumerable ways. In practical all aspects of life, we're completely dependent. I mean, this, this, this power failure, it was just a tiny, uh, sense of what it means, you know, our dependence. Most of everything, everything still worked. We're dependent for our food our clothes, our houses, our furniture, our vehicles, our machines, our appliances, our equipment of all kinds, endless, everything. We could look around, every, every, everything. We depend on a lot of other beings, you know, for this metal to be here. If you think of all the people that go down into mines, which must be really dreadful, tough work and whatever it takes until finally it comes out and you can buy it at Ikea. (laughs) They even bring it here. This is why it makes sense to develop the altruistic attitude for the benefit of all living beings. Bodhicitta. Verse 11. And if they're not so linear in, in meaning, it's not because I choose them in different ways. I've never quite realized, you know, figured out how this thing progresses. It does somehow. Verse 11. All our suffering arise, all our sufferings arise from the desire for personal happiness. Perfect awakening, on the other hand, comes from the intention to be of use to others. That is why exchanging our own happiness for the suffering of others is the practice of the Buddha's sons and daughters, the Bodhisattvas. In order to awaken such an altruistic motivation, there are many practice possibilities. 
such as we reflect and think again and again about the fact that our own self-centeredness, this endless desire for personal happiness, always produces suffering because we're constantly trapped in desire and attachment or dislike, anger and hatred. We continue to contemplate and reflect upon the fact that deep connectedness and inner freedom or even enlightenment, if you wish, arises solely from the intention to benefit others, benefit many, not just about me. Martin Luther King said, Life's most persistent and pressing question is, what do you do for others? That is why we practice through reflection and then above all in actual practice in daily life, exchanging our happiness for the suffering of others. This is the practice of the bodhisattvas. Now follow a number of verses which describe in various ways what has to be done to generate compassion and wisdom for the benefit of living beings. And um, some of those um, proposals are so outrageous, you know, I'll just read them. Like the following three verses. They're exercises from the so-called Lochong teaching mind and heart trainings, highly valued among Tibetan Dharma practitioners. These are radical practice possibilities to transform and liberate one's heart and mind. If one has the guts and dares to apply, to actually apply them or even is able to. I simply read them out. You know, if they're too radical, which they are for me, Relax. Even if someone were to steal all our possessions out of desire, we would dedicate our bodies, our wealth and our good qualities of all three times to him. Even if someone were were to cut our arms off for no reason, out of, of compassion, we would take upon ourselves all the suffering that would arise for this person through his action. Even if someone were to fill the boundless worlds with degrading claims and, about us, we would describe with a loving heart all his wholesome qualities. It seems to be the most difficult one. This is the practice of the Buddha's daughters and sons, the Bodhisattvas. I won't comment it. Verses 20 and 21. In these next two verses, it's again pointed out on how important it is for us to weaken the root causes of all suffering, internal and external, in our hearts and minds, and ultimately let them dry up. Just when the inner enemy, hate, is not overcome, the overcoming of external enemies will only increase the hatred, 
That is why we soothe our spirit with the power of love and compassion. Calming resentment, anger and hatred becomes possible as we know by cultivating the hard qualities of kindness and compassion which we have to strengthen day in, day out. Again, Martin Luther King, he found, Darkness cannot drive away darkness. Only light can. Hate cannot drive hate away. Only love can. And I like Abraham Lincoln's famous question that goes, Do I not destroy my enemies when I make them my friends? Or more simply put, I destroy my enemies by making them my friends. I mean, they're not destroyed, but they're not enemies anymore. I think that's why metta and karuna practice is so important. That's why we do it. The verse continues, The things of desire are like salt water. No matter how much of it we enjoy, the thirst will only grow. That is why we immediately give up whatever causes attachment. The weakening of desire and attachment becomes possible if we consistently turn away from the things that cause desire and attachment. Swami Sivananda writes on renunciation. That's the point here, obviously. We possess nothing when we were born. And we cannot take anything with us when we have to leave. In the meantime, we make ourselves unhappy by attachment and greed. A certain amount of renunciation is therefore an indispensable factor for peace and happiness in life. These are the exercises of the daughters and sons of the Buddhas, the Bodhisattvas. Like a bird needs two wings to fly, we need two practice aspects on the way to liberation. The relative practices which have been discussed so far on the one hand, and the realization of the ultimate nature of mind and of all things, on the other hand, or wing. This is why we'll now zero in on our deeply deluded perception. Whatever we see, hear, sense, taste, smell or feel and think, it will always be perceived as an experience that I have that I encounter. It is always self-referential. And this becomes quite obvious, you know, particularly in retreats, if you're interested to look at it, to see it. It's not incredibly uh, profound to notice it, unfortunately. So obvious. Everything seems to refer to me, the apparent center of the universe. We experience ourselves and our world dualistically. That is, as an experience, an object, whatever happens, and an experiencer, the subject, who 
has the experience. Like, you know, we come in an interview or group and we say, I had a difficult day or I had this or that. So it's clear there is I and whatever I had or have, that's what's meant in simple terms by dualistic view. It's inbred. It's natural. It's automatic. It is precisely this deception that we must learn to see through if we want to free ourselves from, really free ourselves from grasping and attaching to our moment-to-moment experiences. It obviously takes a great deal of consistent meditation practice to be able to free oneself in this central point. That's really the essence of Buddhist practice, we could say. Verse 22 reads, and it's quite complex, uh, it is really complex, I did, from many translations I looked at, I did two, and it's not so easy to make a good one, so never mind if it doesn't make too much sense, <laughs> but try. All dualistic appearances, all dualistic appearance comes from our own mind, although the mind has been free from deception from the very beginning. Understanding this deeply, we no longer grasp at the duality of subject and object. It's saying that it's not real, the duality. It just appears that way and we believe, we grasp habitually. This is the practice of the daughters and sons of the Buddhas, the Bodhisattvas. And again, translate it differently, the same verse. The apparent duality of object and subject, of the perceiving and the perceived, perceived, perceiving. To not believe, because all dualistic appearances come from our own mind, which in the end is really free from this pretended way of being. It's free of this way of being since the very beginning. Somehow it has managed itself to trick itself into that mode. This is the practice of the daughters and sons of the Buddhas, the Bodhisattvas. Joseph Goldstein says, When our mind stops desiring, judging and identifying with whatever is happening, We see the empty flow of experience as it is. We come to a ground of silence and innate completeness. The Buddha explained this point in his short teaching to Bahia. I mean, he explained it in countless teachings, but this is a famous one. Bahia, who, by the way, upon hearing this very short teaching, immediately experienced complete awakening. Buddha said this is how you should practice Bahia that's the person he was speaking to in seeing there is only what is seen in hearing there is only what is heard in feeling there is only what is felt in perception is only what is perceived. 
for us, that's not all there is. There is I, me, mine, who is in the seeing, in the hearing, in the feeling, in the perceiving. It's not, but it seems to be there. Right here lies an essential point of liberation. And again, don't stress yourself. But please begin to explore. I think it's the most interesting. You know, Self-therapy can be really helpful. But I think even meditation isn't the best place to do it. I mean, in my experience, it's so much more helpful to have a good therapist who sees the one's own problem, you know, right away while we're part of it and it's very hard to see our own stuff. Forget it. We don't need to do this here. I can really do what Carol tells us every morning. <laughs> it's true. Just be, 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 be one after the other with every experience. Sorry, Carol. Uh, here it goes back for whatever reason in a somewhat different version this verse 23 when we encounter an attractive object which may appear as beautiful as a rainbow in summer to see it as non-real as dreamlike and thereby give up all attachment to it is the practice of the daughters and sons of the Buddhas the Bodhisattvas there's a different approach now by the way, the same applies, of course, to the repulsive things we encounter. We must learn to see them as unreal, as illusions, as mere appearances, in order to overcome all aversion to them. Here, desire and aversion, the causes of all inner suffering, are no longer countered by their opposed opponent forces, such as compassion and renunciation, but by the realization of the fact that all things of existence are not very real, but fleeting and ungraspable like rainbows, like empty echoes, like dreams, like mirages. The one way to be with them and transform them is compassion, kindness, joy, renunciation. Another way is to start to see their nature, what they're made of, their unreality, their actual ungraspability. Even though we grasp all the time, we never can keep any of the stuff we grasp at. I love the saying by the Mahasita Saraha of the 8th century India. It says, people who think things are real are as stupid as a cow. But people who think things are not real are even more stupid. So I leave the sentence like this. Maybe some of you would want to find out of what it means. It's extremely profound and very obvious. As a final admonition, verse 36 is a Interesting advice. 
circumstances. In short, whatever we do, wherever we are, we should ask ourselves, in what condition is my mind right now? Not to judge, but just to know, be aware. With mindfulness and care to constantly work for the good of others, this is the practice of the daughters and sons of the Buddhas, the Bodhisattvas. At the last verse, number number 37, reminds us of the importance of what is good in the end. The appreciation, the dedication of the created, positive, wholesome practices, deeds and states of mind and inner qualities. At the start, we practice what is good in the beginning, the clarification of our motivation for practice for everyday life, which is the altruistic attitude and intention that we do whatever we do here or anywhere as much as we can for the well-being of many, not just because it's good for us. Then we practice the same at the end. The end of formal practice, the end of the day, the end of an enterprise. We remember with appreciation and joy the wholesome thoughts and deeds that have been carried out by us and by others. That's what we do every evening. Thus open our hearts once again and give away everything that was good to the world, to living beings, to the well-being of many. That's the 37 verses. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.